heart attacks, UTI infections, Jake Sullivan awake for a home invasion attempt at 4 a.m. because he was just up working on a Tuesday night? Is the national security bureaucracy in America unwell? Why are the U.S.'s top national security professionals feeling like they have to work themselves to death? To discuss, I have on today John Gans, a former Pentagon speechwriter who's had many, many other jobs in Washington. He is also the author of the fantastic White House Warriors, a history of the National Security Council. So what is unwell about uh, America's national security bureaucracy? There's obviously some outliers in the, uh, in, in the news today. Earlier this fall, General Eric Smith who is the uh, commandant of the Marine Corps and is a former colleague of mine at the Pentagon had a heart attack and has since had to have some surgery as has been publicly announced by the Marine Corps. Um, and, you know, these are examples that have, I guess, bringing up this question of, you know, is, is, is working in government bad for your health? And I think, you know, I think these are, you know, heart attacks and prostate cancer probably aren't clearly derived by the day job you have. I mean, there's plenty of people who are, have both of those conditions that aren't working in the U.S., uh, in Washington and in the U.S. national security bureaucracy. That said, I mean, I think there is a good question of, you know, um, I think every every four years we always have the before and after pictures of presidents who looked spry or at least relatively spry when they got the job and look far less spry at the after four years and even worse after eight years. Right. Uh, I think that was, you know, pronounced with Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton. Like this is this is a. This is a gig that, you know, ages you. Um, and same is true of those who are in the shadows, right? In fact, it might be worse because they don't get all the attention. They don't get the great lighting. <laughs> they don't get the advanced teams. They don't have a staffer making sure they have a peanut butter and jelly. Um, whatever they were pumping Donald Trump out with at the end of his term, you know, just to keep him upright after COVID and everything else. So I think it's one of those ones where these are, um, these staff jobs are hard. Um, they are, you know, I think populated by people who drive themselves hard and these are hard days and, you know, it takes a toll as a system. It is not sustainable without a steady influx of new talent, right? Like it is not like there's a reason national security advisors don't do that job for 20 years. Like that's, you know, the average tenure is short. There's a reason staff tenure is short. And there is a reason these jobs are going to younger people, right? Like the staff age, the, New York, the national security staff age has declined over the course of, I guess now, what is it? We're coming up on 80 years of the National Security Council has declined because only certain people can do the job because let your health is one thing. Work-life balance is not even a discussion, but like if you have a family or you have other things, you know, a, a wife you're taking care of, a, a, a mother you need to visit, if you have kids, like you can't do these jobs because they are, um, the need is endless. The demands are endless and the supply of time you have to do it is limited, right? And so, but these people who are in these jobs are tempted to sit there for 23 hours a day. Um, and they're in some ways rewarded for it. So let's kind of go through step by step the, you know, types of, um, you know, the, the, the drivers to be in the situation where, you know, not just the National Security Advisor or the Commandant of Marines, but also, you know, the 30 something um, with a 
you know, with a significant other and a small child at home yeah. feels, um, you know, compelled to be working, you know, 18, 19, 20 hour days. We'll start with this one because maybe it's like the simplest is the sort of sense of importance and uh, the sort of type of person that wants to do this. It was interesting. I was sort of struck with one of the characters in your book. He was at Kennedy's inauguration and Kennedy asked, you know, do, yeah. you know what, what can you do for this country? And, you know, you're all inspired and you go into this. I'm like, what, how would you, we're a long time away from that. We've had, you know, really ugly wars for the past 25 years. Yeah. Like, what is the type of person in the 21st century who's drawn to these national security positions? And if you could sort of characterize the sense of like, why they're in this game in the first place when there are so many reasons not to be from a, uh, you know, compensation, like work-life balance perspective. Um, you know, what, what's the, what's the like typical mindset of the person who ends up um, in one of these incredibly high pressure roles? So this is good. It's a, it's a great question. I wrote this book on the national security council staff and, and you know, there, there really isn't a book about the staff, right? There's like a few books about the advisors. And so I like tried to just figure out what the staff was all about. And it was a, it was a really interesting experience. And, you know, I would go out and talk to people and I would say, you know, these people, you know, these are human beings, right? These people aren't that different than you or me, except, and this is like the, the like the difference right there, they're flesh and blood They're They generally have good educations. They generally have, you know, come from enough of a foundation of family or financial support that they could go to a good college, maybe a good post-grad degree, whatever. Like that's a difference maker in the sense of humanity. But the difference is between them and your average college graduate is, you know, as you point out, the number of people who were inspired to change their lives by the words of one politician in 1961 is shockingly high. Like the number of the people I talked to of a certain generation who were like, well, I listened to John Kennedy and I had to go work in government. It's like they did and they went and did you know, things they regretted in many cases, like, you know, one of them went to Vietnam and like had a horrible experience and like had a massive reaction and changed his life again and became much more of a dove. Another went on to like, you know, put Marines in a position in Beirut where they were blown up at the airport in 1983, right? Like they have made terrible decisions with this, but they are motivated to do this by some reason. And, and I think there are, not a lot of John Kennedy's and there's certainly not a lot of his inaugural addresses, right? Like that still stands out as one of the best, you know, there is, but there are every generation, there is something, a spark that like is, you know, a dog whistle that is heard by a certain number of people in the world who say, I have to go do this. And, you know, for me, it was 9-11. I think there's a lot of people in my generation who are 9-11 people. For others, it was, you know, Ronald Reagan tearing, tell, tear down this wall and they hear it and they go. And there is enough of a supply of these folks who want to do this with their lives. And, um, and there is an endless demand. Like most people who want to do this, if they go to Washington and give it enough time, they will eventually show up in one of these jobs. It's not like it requires hitting a few marks, having a few educational marks, having enough willingness to endure long days and low pay. And it's not even that low pay, like you can do okay. Um, certainly if you're in your twenties and thirties and 
wait it out and get you know the breaks that you require. But it doesn't require that many breaks to end up on the NSC staff. It doesn't require that many breaks to end up at a congressional office and do ledge that's related to national security. It just doesn't. Um, and you know that is the thing, right? Like there's enough people here who need those young people that they'll take them, uh, and they just work there. And some just stick with it. And I think those are. The difference between them is the same difference between your average politician and the president, right? Which is there's a, enough of a fire burning in them to get to that top room that they'll endure anything to get there. Yeah. And many of them do. And it's, it's sort of interesting thinking about this in the context of like of U.S.-China competition because, you know, it's been this kind of weird, slow-burning thing for like 15 years, really. And... Um, I, there are like Alex Wong of Scale AI is like the only young person, prominent young person I've seen speaking like with passion about sort of US China competition as like a, a driving force. And, um, you know, we haven't had a 9 11, we haven't had a sort of JFK inaugural speech. And, you know, I live very much in this world and like the folks who end up thinking about strategic technology competition, it's just, it's a very weird motley crew um, because there hasn't quite been a crystallizing, uh, you know, event or moment. And, you know, studying, way fewer people are studying Chinese than there even were five years ago. So anyways, um, not sure where I'm going with that, but I do want to, sorry. No, it's interesting though. I mean, it, it is interesting though, because I will say this, which is like, in some ways, Washington isn't that different than like other town, like towns where there's like, a, you know, collection of talented people working. You know, it's probably not that different than Silicon Valley, right? Where you have, I'm something about this world, and you know, we're talking on computers, so I'm pointing at a computer, even though yeah. obviously that makes no sense to anybody's watching this or listening to it. Sure, but like something about that world connects with them. They hear it and they go, "This is where I want to go," and they land there and they go. Same with Hollywood, right? Like you watch a movie and you something about it or you watch a show and something about it captures your like thing. And you go out there and you say, this is what I want to do. And, and in most cases, those places will allow you to do it. I think the China stuff is interesting because I think there have been different times in our history where China has done that, right? Like I'm sure, you know, when, you know, Henry Luce and co, I'm sure the missionaries early in the century were inspired, I think. Um, I think like China was always, and it's like interesting because I have friends who worked on Russia forever and it's like, that was not hot on either. Um, and so there's always been, so I think I have a friend who works on Russia who has always worked on Russia. And it was like, how many, how often was Russia cool, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, right? And he is now like at foreign service and he's like ready, right? Like he's in the space. And so I think China was always, especially over the last 20 years, it was kind of like the, it was niche, it was big niche, but it was never, it was, if you were inspired for power, that was probably not where you ran over the last 20 years. Yeah. Like it was sort of a, it was a counter path because everybody who wanted power ran to learn Arabic, serve in Iraq or Afghanistan and like hit the boxes so they could get there fast. But like China was, a, China was always one of those ones where it was also harder. Like it's harder. Like it's, you know, it's a lot easier to just go sign up and do five-year tour take a take a hope you get lucky and don't get hurt and in iraq or afghanistan and get your security clearance and go in whereas learning china learning chinese and getting into that country that's a bigger harder thing to do 
Yeah. So I, I want to come back to this, uh, the like, you know, who's in it and what's motivating them because yeah, for sure. you have this um, kind of you know, ostensible ethos of the National Security Council where, you know, you, you have this concept of Washington common law where these are these are like the air traffic controllers. They're kind of like getting all the dots in the order, making sure the briefings are presented. All the stakeholders are at the table. Um, but you end up with the people who are on it are the youngest, the hungriest, the most capable. You know, they want to make their stamp in the universe. They want to be in the sequel to your book. Right. And you don't you don't you don't get a chapter in White House Warriors if all you're doing is just kind of being a train conductor. Right. And yeah. th there's a really interesting tension there, because I think that is another one of these drivers, which leads people to these 18, 19 hour days where, you know, they see themselves as absolutely mission critical. And I'm sure Jake Sullivan believed to the depth of his bones that if he was not working 20 hour days during, uh, you know, the, the plot in Afghanistan, more people would have gotten out. And if he wasn't staying up all night, you know, talking to to Zelensky and 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 artillery manufacturers like there would be fewer shells um, that the Ukrainian military could use. And 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 part of that is is I'm sure part of that is true. But also there's this there's this sense of like, look, I'm in the pinnacle. Here's my moment. You know, now's my time to to change the shape of, of, of world events. And if um, and if if not me, who? Yeah, I mean, I think just to tease out a few pieces there, I mean, the common law piece is like. I, I use that term because, you know, the National Security Council was created in 1947 and the staff, uh, it's a big law, right? The National Security Act of 1947 is massive. But the, the, the piece of it is, is that the staff was created with just one line of law, right? And there's not like the staff will be X, Y, and Z. It is just like, there will be a staff. And what happened is, is that over 60, 70, now almost 80 years, that staff has evolved into being you know, a creature of the president. Like all of these things were not certain, right? This was like up in the offing. It's just developed as a result of decisions that everybody's kind of reinforced and have accepted, right? Like nobody's lost it. Nobody's gone like, I am going to end this. I'm going to cut this off. There's a few times where the people threatened, but it was always like, you know, the president gets to do what these wants. He's going to get a bunch of people here. Both parties have sort of been okay with it, you know, and it has existed. And as a result, it is like, the demand signal is set. Like we need this number of people every day for a year. I mean, I think, and so you have this, like these billets exist, right? Like what they're called billets in Washington, right? There's just a, a desk that needs to be staffed and somebody needs to do it. And you get those decisions, you get those assignments. You don't get, most people don't get directly hired by the national security. It's not like they have a page that they, you know, career page where you can go and sign up and get there usually serve in the military or you serve in this, the, the intelligence community or you serve in the diplomatic or the foreign service. Right. And because there's no money that spends really spent on the staff, it's, it's budget is actually not that much in terms of what's appropriated. They have always just taken people from this, these different baskets of paid for money. So they've taken stuff from the officer core of the military. They've taken stuff from the foreign service. They've taken folks from the intelligence community. So paid for. And so the way you get those jobs is, and because it's perceived to be a mutual interest between the, the whatever the parent agency is, the military, you know, Marines, whatever, and the White House, they're like, oh, it's in both our interests to have these people serve here. And so it's kind of a plum assignment, 
Right. And so who gets your plum assignments? Your high flyers, your high flyers, then get a two year tour and give a high flyer two years and say, this is your, this is your tour. And those are basically what you get. You get a year and then you can usually re up for a second year or you get two years flat out. And that's your, that's your place. And I, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of people for the job over the course of, for the book. And, you know, one of them said, you're like three steps from power. It's, you know, president, it's then the national security advisor, the deputy national security advisor, whoever your boss is. And sometimes you're, you know, you're closer, right? Like you, and you sit there and you say, how many times do you get to do that? How many times do you, and then you are in a position where you know, you are probably the, you might not be in the deepest expert on China, Afghanistan, AI, but at, for those two years, you have the opportunity to know more about that thing of, well, what's happening than anybody on the planet, right? Like, you know, you have, because all the information goes to the center, they get to pull information from the Y, the embassy, whatever. They have it all, and most of it gets sent to them. They don't even have to fight for it because everybody wants to get their information to the White House. So you're sitting here, you get two years, you have all this information, and you are a high flyer. What are you going to do? And it's funny, like, I would say this in, when I would go to like, talk to people about this book at Think Tanks. And I was like, you have an incentive to do something with that time. And people would say, why? And I said, in most cases, and in many cases, in almost every American war since World War II, the person that has said, yeah, we should do more, has been a National Security Council staffer. And they have done that. And I've, I've heard from staffers. I've been yelled at by staffers. And they said, I didn't do that. And I'm like, okay, but you could have. <laughs> or they would say, I would never do that. And I said, okay, we'll see. Because, you know, I, I know, like, I haven't served on the staff. So, that's, you know, everybody says, we didn't serve on the staff. So, you don't know. I'm like, okay, well, I've interviewed dozens of staffers. I've read lots of stuff. And there's just like, you're there. What are you going to do? Yeah. Like, you get to write a president, a memo of the president. Tell me what you think you should do. You know, the incentive is there. Yeah, you have this you have this great kind of heuristic, which I think you argued pretty compellingly over the course of looking at, um, you know, post World War Two. Looking at the history of the NSC, where um, uh, where where the NSC, because they have all these information inputs and everyone's trying to feed them the stuff like they actually do a better job of identifying the problems than a lot of other parts of the bureaucracy. Yeah, but. Because, you know, you're on this short leash. I mean, I mean, you only have two years. You're this high flyer. You're probably like have a general bias towards action. Um, you have this quote, you know, go big when we can. And the sort of flashy big solution where like the president gets involved and solves your thing is this institutional bias of being this 30 something who, you know, wants to make their dent in the universe, you know, for a good reason. Um, but there is this kind of interesting, like savior complex that ends up, uh, yeah. manifesting in these roles. For sure. I mean, it's like, you know, for, so, and that the go big one we can, it's like, that's quote from an NSC staffer. Like that's not like, I mean, that's, that's, that is literally like quote. And I, what I'd say about it is, okay, you're all right. So let's keep going. So the incentive is there. All right. You also are sitting there and you're like, you know, okay, you're sitting in the backseat of a car. And you watching, and you don't, you're an NSC or staffer in the NSC. You are not an operator. Like, you are not 
doing the operation. So I looked at wars because it's the high stakes, right? Like it's like, to me, it's like if they do it at war, they can do it anywhere. And so one of the things is that they are not the general on the ground who's making decisions and sending guys out and women out. And they're not a diplomat in the room doing the negotiation. They're not the operator, nor are they supposed to be, right? When the NSC staff gets in operations, they tend to get in trouble for good reason, because they aren't operators. Like they don't know the rules of engagement. They're not in that space. So you're sitting there and you see you're, they're basically sitting in the backseat of the car. And arguably they see, have a better view of what's going on because they have more information coming into them. They have, they're not sitting in the theater, they're not sitting in the war, they're not sitting in the headquarters in Baghdad, they're not sitting in the green zone. They're just sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania. I think you're going to go home that night. They're probably going to get better sleep, have better food. They're going to see something better. So they're great at seeing the problem. Like they are great at saying, holy mackerel, we're about to hit that card. <laughs> or even more kindly, holy mackerel, we're about to miss this turn. The ch so then you say, okay, we've all been in a car where that's happening. Do you jump up and grab the steering wheel? The challenge with it is, is that um, when you're sitting at that desk, you feel some sense of the president's responsibility and it is the president's responsibility, right? The president's job is to grab the steering wheel, right? Like, or at least tell them to turn, uh, order them to. And so these, these young people feel that sense of responsibility. It's a shared responsibility. It's, you know, uh, it's that's that principal agent component and they want to grab the steering wheel. And in many cases they have, and you know, three, th I, I think I take the long view on this, which is, you know, American wars since World War II, not a robust showing, I don't think, like not a really, uh, you know, a, a 80 years of statecraft that I think would, is gonna hold up in the, in the history books is like really fine effort. Um, so wars have like a lot of problems. Most of them haven't been great. So lots of opportunity. And they also, but they also are like, they have great judgment of when something's going wrong because yeah. they can see things, but they have very poor judgment of what to do because they're not doing the things. It's like, it's the classic like operator's dilemma. It's like, you know, when I'm when I'm cooking something, I'm like in it, but somebody from outside the world can sit here and say, oh man, you're messing this up. But when you're in it, you don't really get it. And you're kind of like, but I'll figure it out. Yeah. And they don't have to have that problem, but because they aren't operating it, they don't have a sense of how to fix it very well. And they've messed up more than they've done, done well in, that, in, in the prescription business, let's just put it that way. So, uh, you know, you mentioned presidents, and one of the things that really struck out to me was uh, your story of the Obama administration in the first year, the decision um, to to whether or not to, to send more troops to Afghanistan. And, mm -hmm. you know, y you have this back and forth where are the generals boxing them in? Is this like, um, but, 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 by, but, but, excuse me, but Obama, he's really trying to do the regular order thing. He's getting all the memos mm -hmm. written. Everyone's at the table. Yeah. It's this very deliberative discussion. And, you know, he sees all the pros and cons of it. But like the crazy thing for me was you have this line where he's like, Obama spent, oh, you know, 25 hours on this. Like, th this is an incredibly consequential decision. One of the most important decisions of his presidency. You know, there are billions of dollars, like, like tens, I mean, hundreds of thousands of lives on the line. And 25 hours. And that's just for the big one. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's sort of, it's sort of, I think, you know, we... 
in the, the China talk in our audience, like we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, national security, uh, foreign policy, but like this is at most 15% of 15, 20% of the president's time. And of that, your little issue is going to be some fraction of it. And it's just kind of wild that we have this system where there's this executive who's the one that ultimately going to have to make these decisions that has just so little bandwidth. Um, thoughts, reflections on that? What are the sort of downstream implications of, um, uh, of, uh, of that dynamic, John? No, I mean, listen, I, the thing with this stuff is like, you know, I mean, it's hard, right? Like, it's not easy, right? So, you know, I can sort of say it's all been a record, you know, a subpar record, right, over 80 years, but it's not like that was easy, right? So you can kind of get it. Um, anybody that's done our archival research has these moments where you're like, you're able to like just capture a moment of like what it felt like when you're sitting there. It's like, you're, you're sitting at a nice presidential library, you know, Sydney Valley for Reagan or, you know, College Station for Bush or H.W. Bush or whatever it is, right? So you're sitting at this like library at this nice desk. You're like going through their files and like their files kind of exist as they did, right? In most cases, like most people don't really spend a lot of time cleaning their files. And like you go through like Brent Scowcross files from the first days of the sort of what was the Gulf crisis that became, the, you know, Desert Shield and then Desert Storm and whatever. And you like you go through it and you're like, the number of things going past his desk is just truly shocking. Like, and this is in pre-email era, yeah. right? Well, they had email, but like, this is in pre, like, it was in your face. He didn't have a computer, like, for instance. Um, but like, you know, today it must just be like all, like, just constant. Like, the amount of information, like, bad stuff stacking into your space is truly shocking. So it's like, it's very funny. Like, I can't actually tell if you think 25 hours is too much or too little. Like, from the perspective of like somebody who's like spent time with the president, that's a sh like trying to understand the president. Like that's a shocking amount of time. Yeah. Like it was a shocking number of hours they dedicated to that. And they just, that's just his hours. He sat at the sit table, sit room table. Like the amount of everybody else's time was shocking. Right. Um, and so it kind of gets to it, but I think it also falls in the category of like, you know, making national security decisions is kind of like making, planning a wedding you know it's like you can plan a wedding for tomorrow yeah right like or you can plan a wedding for three years and the planning will take whatever time you give it because you will just fill the time so i think there is a degree of this which is like you could prop and he could have probably made that call whatever like he could have probably made that call at hour three and it probably would have turned out about the same way yeah. i mean i think what you do get is that the, the weirdness of the system is that it is a like it is a collection of parts that come together in a rather, you know, it was designed to like, like, let's just get everybody in the room and we'll think it through. Like that was kind of the concept. And it's like it's not rocket science, but that was like the concept. And to get a bunch of smart people in the room, there's a lot of staff work that goes into it. And then to like accurately track what a smart bunch of smart people decide in a room and then implement it. it takes a lot of staff time and so you have this whole operation that is built around trust and this is the weirdest thing about the system because you know you could very easily see this has happened before we've talked about who these people are super ambitious they're driven to like make history they all have streams of information they all want to have a say it's like 
the people at the National Security Council aren't the only ones that want to have a say, right? So is Secretary of Defense. So you have all these super driven people who are super ambitious and are trying to make the most of their moments to make good, like, right, and make history and make their names and make their careers, right? And the only way you can actually get them all to like work together is if they trust each other. And the only way to build trust is to give them a chance to get that say out, mm. right? So like you have to give a smart secretary of defense a chance to make his case over and over and over again for you to ever have a chance to say no to him. Because if you're going to say no to him, you have to, he has to, because the only way he'll implement your decision is if he, at the end of the day, and I'm using he, but I'm just saying it like it could be a she. The only way they will implement your decision is if they genuinely believe you gave them a chance. Now, like orders and like all these sorts of things, like that happens. And like, that's what's weird about that decision. Cause like at the end of the day, Barack Obama said, this is an order and all the people like Bob Gates and everybody else were like, that's fucking weird. Like, like who gives an order, right? Because, but like, that's how, and what happened in that system was like the effort to build trust, which was to get everybody in the room and give them a chance actually led to a distrust that like broke down and so you had to actually issue a direct order which is like why it was such a bizarre decision yeah right and and so you end up in a situation where like this is all a effort to try and get the best out of smart people and it tends to i mean there are examples of good decisions that are made but it tends to lead to um distrust more times than not like you know, the current administration is unique because they actually haven't broken down into rivals and factions as aggressively as uh, the other ones have, but they all have. I mean, they all have it. This one will eventually do that because they all do eventually because um, that's human nature yeah. of the kind of people that end up in these jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. A lot of stuff to pick up on that. You know, 25 hours initially, it seemed to me like not a lot of time. Um, two and a half days uh to make the busy the biggest decision of my life like i i want to about a topic like i don't really know a lot about right like i would want more context um and you know maybe a little more time to breathe but on the other hand it like what would before that process if people if everyone around the room could take odds on what obama would do I, i'm sure the betting favorite would have been yeah like send more troops but like not a ton more troops um yeah. the the kind of NSC as a trust building institution um, that actually oftentimes is counterproductive um, is a really interesting is a really interesting uh, dynamic. Do like real companies need trust building organizations when the executive makes a decision? Like like is this is there something unique to the national security bureaucracy or America just being this like unwieldy thing? I think yes. I think yes. I mean, I think the two things I I mean, like you read like the Steve Jobs book, right? Like he, I think, explains like one of the reasons he was a terrible CEO the first time around was he, like he didn't give a shit yeah. about what anybody said. Like he was just like, if you can't do it, get out. And it led to, you know, eventually he got thrown out. Right. So I think and then he came around and was, you know, helped develop Tim Cook and other people like like. So there's a piece of this that is I think everybody needs to do it. I mean, what makes national security different? Right. I think one the financial incentives aren't there, right? So like there isn't the like, hey, you know, if we all get this together, we can make a lot of money and like you're going to be financially rewarded. I think what is, um, so that's a piece of it, right? So I think that's one decisive factor, right? I think it is also weird because at the end of the day, like 
the national security actually is kind of like shielded, right? Like it's like most people don't know who the NSC staffer is working on China. Like I, how many people in America think know who Kurt Campbell is? Like, you know, I mean, Kurt Campbell is on my dissertation degree. I love Kurt Campbell. Like he's like a trip. Like he is like amazing. I wish more people knew who he was because I just think like most people would genuinely get a kick out of Kurt Campbell and his like he's smart and interesting and challenging and like charming. But how many people know who that is? Like how many? I guarantee you, most of the people who read my book were like, I have no idea who Megan O'Sullivan is, but she made the influence the biggest national security decision of you know certainly of her of the twenty years of her time right on both ends, right? So it's like, it's fascinating. So most people don't know who these people are. So it's not like you're getting famous, right? Like in most cases, like you end up in a book like mine, it's probably not a good thing. Um, so it's not that piece, right? Um, and I think the other thing is, is that the weird thing about, the one thing that is unique about, well, there's a couple of things. War is also like a very uniquely weird thing to like deal with, like national survival and war is very high stakes. So how do you get people to do this without shutting down? Right. Like that's a piece. And then the fourth thing is, I think, is like everybody has a specific boss. Right. And you're trying to like like the Defense Department reports, you know, most of it is like uniform military and they will be there after the president leaves. They could all sit on their hands for four years if they really wanted to. The You know, same with same is true of this foreign service, same is true of the intelligence corps, same is true of rest of the federal bureaucracy. Right. And. How do you get the best out of people who, out of the like so-called deep state, who's going to be here the day after you get thrown out of office, right? Like you have to convince them to help you. And that's a very unique thing, right? Like, cause in theory, like you can fire people in the private sector. Yeah. Like you, you know, like that Steve Jobs did, like you, you, you have a hard time doing that to the U S military, right? Like you could maybe get rid of a chairman, but you can't fire every one of them. Right. Because eventually you're going to need somebody to do the job. Right. So I think that's the other piece of it. Like it is a very weird dynamic and like the only basis of it, there's only one person in the system has any reason that they can give an order. It's because a bunch of people in America voted for them. Yeah. Everybody else is like hired by him. Yeah. Um, so it's a little weird. So it's, it's a unique situation in that way. Yeah, this whole kind of governing by remote control, something that one of your subjects said was a, a concept I loved. Yeah, it was Condi Rice, I think, right? It was Condi Rice. Like, she was like, I'm the national security advisor, and if I want to get the U.S. military to do something, I have to kind of hit this button and hope they do it. Like, it, like hope it's, the channel changes. Like, that was her whole thing. And she was, like, in this interview. Like, I remember I was doing this interview with her, and I found her, like, I found all these characters to be pretty amazing. But she was, like, very much more, like, matter of fact like this is hard on a good day yeah. right like you know it's like and i'm just hoping and and you know a lot of times the remote control didn't work for her right like don rumsfeld didn't let it work yeah. i want to talk about the sort of like organizational evolutionary pressures that have existed on the national security council so you know you have this interesting sort of early story it gets created in 1947 um Truman was kind of like not all that into it. And then all of a sudden there's a Korean war. He's like, oh, maybe we should be thinking strategically about the world. Yeah. Um, and uh, Eisenhower comes in. His whole deal is like, I want to think double more strategically because like Truman was like a bunch of bums and like we're going to be the real adults in the room. And then um, you have uh, Kennedy come in and his whole deal was like, oh, these like stodgy old uh 
uh, Eisenhower folks. Like, I'm just going to bring in a few good young Harvard men and we're going to, you know, fix the world. Um, and, and, you know, this, this kind of dynamic of, I guess, like, this, this Kennedy, like, Kissinger-style, like, maverickism and the, the Eisenhower sort of, like, institutional um, let's, like, codify and strategize. Um, can you talk about that kind of spectrum and how it's, you know, done a little bit of seesaw, uh, seesawing over the, course of, uh, of a course of, over the course of American history? The two things I would say is that it was founded by people who served. Right. Like it was founded by people who served. Most of them had served in military during one or two world wars. Right. So it is a very unique situation. Like this is who founds this thing. And they were, these were uh, when the U.S. government was far different and the presidency was far different. Right. This was very much a smaller affair. Right. Like the, 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 Today, the National Security Council staff sits in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which was built to be the war, the State War Navy Building or whatever. I always forget the thing. Right. And that was because each one, the State Department, the War Department, and the Navy, each had a piece of the building. Right. So if you look at the entrances to that building, which is that beautiful building next to the White House, the, there's like cannons on one. There's anchors on one. And I think there's something else on the, on the state entrance. But they had separate entrances. Right. And they all worked in this building, but they didn't all talk that much, right? Like they would just kind of do their thing. They would just like the State Department did its thing. It, like they would send people off to embassies, the War Department. And so they did the World War One, and war sort of forced them all to at least talk a little bit more. And what they found was, oh, when we talked, we actually did better. And so they would always be like, you know, the, the assumption was we just got to get everybody in a room. But getting everybody in a room is not always easy in government because there's not a reward to sit in a room, right? And what happened was, is, you know, World War II comes along. They see the British who have a get everybody in the room. They have a war cabinet model. Like, they had that model. And so there was an exist, there was a precedent that, that many of them engaged with during the war, especially the military side. Like, a lot of people engaged with the, the, that and there was the other thing, which is that Franklin Roosevelt scared him to death because he hated getting everybody in the room. Like he was like, "I am a maverick. I am a do whatever that I am. I, it all rests in my hands, and I'll do whatever I want to do." And the prevailing thing was one of many of them served, and they came out of World War II scared to death because they were like, "This whole thing was run by a old man who was very sick." died unexpectedly and he did the whole thing lying cheating and stealing his way through managing people he would give people contradictory orders he would give people the same orders he would send everybody out and everybody was driven crazy and they're like this is no way to run a war we have to do better and so the we have to do better inspired probably 50 years of people right so you have truman come in who's like i just like i'm an accidental president the only way I can do this is to get the corral all of these people. And he kind of did it because the U.S. Senate forced him to do it. And then he saw his like a little light went off on his team and they said, oh, this is a way to build the White House staff. And so that's what they did. Eisenhower had the same impression, which was like, we have to do better than this. And his reaction was, I want to do I want to do military strict order and discipline. Kennedy said, oh, strict order discipline is overrated. I want to go back to the FDR model. Right. Um, and then you had Johnson. It was very much like not. I mean, he is an Eisenhower, but he was like much more like, let's just have the meetings and we'll go from there. Then you have 
Nixon come in, it was like, he wanted the FDR model too. Like he was like, I want the power of my hands. And so you have this cycle of these guys who want to be like, and they are guys who wanted to be like Roosevelt, even if they couldn't articulate that. Mm. That's what they wanted to be. And like Trump, like was like Roosevelt. Like he wanted it all in his hands. He didn't give a shit about anybody. And he just wanted to do his thing. And so you see that model come back time and time again. And what you find is, you know, it's super attractive, right? And it's especially for politicians who are saying, I gotta be an agent of change. It's a fairly easy way to be the agent of change. And then if you're coming in after that, what? Like Joe Biden was not petitioning to be FDR. He was petitioning, well, he was in some ways, but his whole thing was, I wanna like return order and discipline. Yeah. And so it was much more, there's a way to do this, I know how to do it. And he is much closer to the HW model, who is also like a reaction to much more of a Rooseveltian model and like Reagan. And that's how it works. And it's been that like, you know, wave model of like crazy sort of freelancers and much more sort of uh, process focused folks over the course of the 80 years. Yeah. And, and the system allows it, like it allows it. And like, you know, if you think the selection, it, the selection process, you get some weird people being NSE staffers, like just imagine presidents and what kind of complexes oh, yeah. like they have. And, you know, you're finally, yeah. you're finally in the White House and it's like, all right, well, I could like have this like weird bureaucracy I don't understand, try to do things, or I could just get on the phone and like figure it out myself. And, you know, you, yeah. you, you then you have this dynamic where, um, you know, you have like, Obama, after after that 2009 thing, saying like, "Ooh, maybe I was like a bit too in the weeds here." Uh, uh, JFK, yeah. the same thing, where he, uh, in retrospect, everyone's like, "Dude, you're being like a desk officer. Like, why are you dealing with all this stuff?" Um, but yeah, if you're president and like you got the entire you know American national security apparatus at your disposal, like, and you think you can solve a problem, of course, there's like a real temptation to um, to to cut through some red tape and make it happen. Well, I mean, this is like, I was like, I like go to these, I mean, we've all probably sat in lots of meetings where you're like, well, you know, it's just, we got to do a real strategy or these guys aren't strategic. And you're like, we don't elect strategists. We don't elect international relations scholars. We don't elect people who have probably read half the books on any of your listeners' bookshelves. Like, that's not, <laughs> we elect politicians and we elect lawyers. Like that's pretty much who has ended up being president over the last eight years, right? Like some, you know, outliers, but you know, they're mostly at the end of the day, they're politicians and that is a unique thing. And politicians are many things, but I don't really think you say a politician is that strategic. I mean, I think a politician is like, I got to do what I got to do to get through, to get enough votes on that day. And if you really think strategy is a piece of it, I think, that's probably not how I would describe it. It's like, it's just a pure, I, it's, a, it's a tactical thing, right? Like, it's like, I should gotta go out and convince enough people and enough places to do it. And then the lawyers who, you know, that's pretty much how they make their money. I mean, you know, that's pretty much like, you know, Eisenhower's unique, but that describes mostly everybody else, right? Like, um, you know, Trump isn't a lawyer, but he's a politician. Like, that's who he is. And, I, you know, he's just, that's his thing. And so we then asked them to do this bizarre high stakes enterprise and we empower them with all this stuff. Well, that's what's like, I mean, if you recall the transition from Obama to Trump, like one of the things he like walked in and was like, holy shit, there's a lot of people here. Like uh, he like did a little tour with Obama after the election. And he was like, and I guess he like people were like, 
he seemed genuinely impressed with like the operation. Yeah. And then he like came in and by the end of his term, he had basically totally relegated the NSC staff to like, like they were basically a ghost ship. And it's like, it just shows you like, it's, we hand them this thing and we're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. This is a, this is the rational way to make, uh, to make national decisions. Yeah. And it's, and we hope for the best. I mean, that's what it is. And you know, it's a bizarre thing uh, if you break it down. Um, but it is, I think, one of those ones where we, we to, to expect great strategy out of these people is probably an, un, an unrealistic dream. I think also, you know, coming back to the, like Obama spending 25 hours on this, it's like, great, you have the in control of the entire American natural bureaucracy and it's like 15% of your job. Um, you know, it's like half a day, maybe a day a week you're thinking about foreign policy. Oh, yeah. And it's, I mean, like, let's be clear. And. You know, if you are a politician and you are the goal of your first term is to have a second term and the goal of your second term is not to end up like the worst remembered presidents. Foreign policy really isn't the place you would be like, man, I got to go give all my time to this thing. I mean, like, you know, Clinton is the perfect example of that where he's like, nobody ever talked to me about foreign policy the entire time I was running in 1992. Like, why would I exert my time there? And like foreign policy, you know made him have to deal with it but it is truly like there's no incentive other than avoiding disaster to focus on foreign policy right like there's except for like maybe you want to go on some cool trips and like that's your like vision of your presidency which is getting off the plane and waving and like going through these things but there's very little incentive <laughs> for it like there's always like yeah. you know I, you know i it, it's like the like joe biden is a pretty now like I, I think he has stressed about, I mean, he has put probably as much effort into foreign policy as any president. And do I think that is going to be the reason he gets reelected or not? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that's what the polls suggest. If you look at the polling, foreign policy, I mean, unless you count climate change or immigration as like foreign policy issues, which I don't think most people would, it's not even, in, I mean, it's like not even in the top 10 right now. Like, it's just not what people are voting for. So why, what's the incentive? And, you know, you got to go to these meetings. And it's like, it's like, it is what it is. Like, it's a response. Like, most of them take it seriously. But I mean, Donald Trump did. Like, he just, he just decided not to do it. Like, he was like, I'm not going to those meetings. And he didn't go. So you talked about these two models. We have this, like, kind of sort of militarized, like, regular order common law. We have the Kissinger, Roosevelt. Nixon, Kennedy, Trump, like, uh, maverick, like, fuck it, I'm going to do what I want model. Um, is there a third way? Is this kind of what we're stuck with for the next 75 years? Do I think there is a, another model? It's a good question. I think there could be, I mean, for sure. Right. Um, I think that, you know, what you see is, um, there's probably some evolution, right? Like I think Reagan started one way and ended another way. Um, I think Clinton started one way and ended another way. Like there's that kind of piece to it. There is just a tendency towards like, you're either into this and want to like ride this as a stiff process, or there's like a more freelancing way to do it. And I think that is a basic model of government that like people can do variations on those themes, but I think it probably breaks down pretty closely to that. Like you were either part of that process and like believe that that's just providing uh, something you don't get otherwise, 
where you sort of come to believe it's not a thing. And I think a lot of presidents sort of, especially at the end of the term, evolve. And I mean, I think Obama is a good example of this to a much less rigidly structured system, right? Like it's, you know, and I think you don't have to, right? Because especially at the beginning of your term, you have to get all these people on the same page. That's less true at the end because you can assert more authority with hiring and, and appointments and appointments and everything else. So you can evolve a little bit. Um, you, know, you mentioned earlier that the, the U.S. had the U.K. war cabinet to model. I've read a number of stories that now the kind of NSC as a concept, we had Japan standing up its own version. I think the Blue House in Korea has one. There's even been some articles oh, yeah, yeah. about uh, India, yeah, about India. China of yeah. their of, of Xi wanting his own kind of like NSC type organization. Um, any thoughts on the kind of internationalization of this um, model or if there are other models that other or the other countries in the in the you know world have tried in, over the past few decades? No, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think uh, I think in terms of like the, this this export, you know, this like franchisee model of national security councils, like I think one, it's kind of funny because it's it is, I think India's done one. I think, you know, I think, you know, there's a couple of different op models. Um, and I think it's like, it becomes like, it's like a very good example. Like the national security advisor is not the title of the national security advisor job, right? It's the assistant to the president for national security affairs or whatever. Like that's the title. And the, you know, Lind, like that's never been the job title, right? Like it's like chairman of the Joint Chiefs staff. That's the job title, president's job title. National Security Advisor is like a nickname kind of thing, right? Like it's it's like the kind of and like it came about because like I think Lyndon B. Johnson's guy I think kind of liked it, liked it, and kind of thought it sounded important. And like there was a demand for somebody that sounded important, so he just started calling it the National Security Advisor. That's how the job. That's like why we still have it. Yeah. So I think like every I'm sure in capitals everywhere there are people who are like we need a National Security Council. We need a National Security Advisor. Like there's like a, just a demand for it. I think also like in protocol, it sort of makes sense, right? Like we, they have a, a national security advisor. We should have a national security, like, it, like things. But I think like, you know, the, the thing that hasn't happened that is unique, as I understand it, few have ever have done the staff the way that we have done the staff, right? And that's partly probably driven by the sort of like parliamentary nature of most of these places, right? They are like, the president can go, the, par the prime minister can go tomorrow, right? And so there's not like the massive staff at, at these places. Like I think the cabinet office has like a pretty decent size up, but nobody has. The National Security Council staff has probably like something like 400 people on it today. Like that's a massive amount of people. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, that's a big load of people. And I mean, a lot of that's technical, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping this call secure. That's a massive operation. And most haven't done that. Um, the other models out there, I mean, I think, you know, there's the Saddam Hussein, right? like, which is like me, my son, the Gaddafi model, and like a few generals who are loyal enough not to kill me. That's a model uh, that I think we have, you know, maybe we'll try uh, sometime soon. I have no idea. And then I think there is like the, you know, the far more, but I think like in China, I think you see, and I'm not a China, I've done my basic work, but I'm not a China scholar, but like, I think you see a much more traditional model, right? And I think that's one of the frustrations as I understand it with some of the Chinese foreign policy, which is like, it is much more subject to corruption. And it's much more subject to breakdown because you have the PLA does its thing, PLN does its thing, you know, the, the diplomats do their thing. And sure, we all come together in, in different settings, but like, it's harder to get those organizations 
to agree to things. Um, yeah. And it, and that table allows you to do it, but nobody's, I don't think anybody's doing the staff the way we've done it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, it's clear that in the 20th and 21st century, you know, there is a kind of like, global impetus to want to have your different branches of the military and, you know, your diplomatic corps, like be able to listen and digest what your executive is saying and have that kind of filter in a way where it's not like, you know, Japan in 1941, where you just have like the army over here and the Navy over there. And then you have like the emperor and the prime minister. And it's just this, this big mess, like having some sort of structure where your meetings happen um, and some staff to like help make that flow seems like a thing which is going to happen regardless if you're trying to kind of like compete at a, you know, at, at a, you know, in, in a global way and like at the speed at which, you know, conflicts happen in the in, in the 21st century. What's, what's funny about it is like the, the proliferation of a, mo- a questionable model, right? Like, which is like, yeah. you know, I mean, say what you want about like, you know, Churchill was Churchill and sure we won the war, but like the proliferation of the UK, you know, model to the United States is kind of a trip, right? Like, cause it's not like they were managing the empire particularly well, right? Like the empire yeah, yeah. at the end of the war, not exactly. It's like, it's like the export of McDonald's food. It's like, you know, everybody wants it, but nobody realizes it's terrible for you. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like you're welcome for your supersized Big Mac. It's really not that nutritious, yeah. but you can also have a national security council despite its track record. Yeah. Of, so, uh, so that's, yeah. that's kind of the evolutionary pressure question that I want to get back to you is like, look, sure. The U S looks great because we're really big and we're really rich and we came out of the cold war on top. And, um, you know, regardless of all of the sort of missteps that you pointed to, in your book of the National Security Council, you know, screwing up Lebanon and like screwing up Iraq and screwing up Afghanistan and screwing up Vietnam. Like at the end of the day, like America is still here and still the largest, richest, most powerful country in the world. So it's it's interesting because like because that is the case, like the, the, there haven't the sort of evolutionary pressures that have been put on the NSC and the national security bureaucracy and generally as like an organization have, you know, as you said, like kind of come because the new president is a little frustrated with the style of the other president um, that came before them. Not like, you know, you have 10 handset manufacturers and they're all trying to make different cell phones and like you're going to get the best one at the end. Like you're not running sort of parallel experiments like there's 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 much less actual, you know, you know, evolutionary happening. And you end up with this common law, which like may just not be the. Um, you know, fittest version of national security decision-making from a, you know, like national power maximization, global happiness perspective. But like, it's yeah. the one we're stuck with. And I'm, I'm sitting here talking to the historian who's written a book about it, who can't come up with any good ideas of how to do it differently. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah, I, what I would say about it is I, like, I think the two things I'd say about it is like, is there like an alternative universe America that like post World War II didn't create a national security council and did it have, is it have a different, like, do we end up in different places? So that's a good question. Like as a thought expert, yeah. like, do you end up in a different place? My suspicion is that if the presidency itself was less empowered, you would have gone to far fewer wars. 
Like, I do genuinely believe that. Like, I just think the wars are the answer to a problem because there aren't that many answers to hard problems. So I do think, like, do I think Vietnam would have happened or persisted? Do I think Afghanistan would have persisted as long? No. If you didn't have a national security, I do not think so. Like, I just don't think that's true. Like, if you look at the frustration over the last 20-something years with wars, like, if you look at, you know, the election in 2004, like, you know, that was, they were, people were not happy with war in 2004, right? Yeah. Like, around Iraq. And they were furious in 2006. What did they get after 2006? Surge in Iraq. They didn't get, like, get the hell out of Iraq. You got that. You like to post, you like the anti-war president, like, in Barack Obama. And you got a surge in Afghanistan and an eight-year war. You were like Donald Trump, who literally said, I'm getting out. And he was in all the way through. Right? So it's like, it, the system is, does not react to what the public wants. And it probably doesn't really always react to what the, admit, like, the bureaucracy would do. So I think there's an alternative user where I do believe that. In terms of, like, I do think, listen, the, white, the NSC exists because, like, for lack of a better idea, right? And, like, no, lots of things in the United States and our government exist because, you know, disaster hasn't struck yet, right? Like, because, you know, there's no real other way to operate because this is how we know how to operate. Like, it's yeah. the same way I'm sure that's how it goes. That said, I mean, I have, I'm of the opinion, like, there's a, if, we have a, if we have a president, that person is going to want some people around to help them. And they're probably going to want to get everybody in a room. My own view on, like, what you could do differently, I think that the, that the NSC would focus less on, and the president could focus less on, like, they have to pick the right size issues that they focus on. Like, they're going to focus on things the same way because they're like, this is who we elect, right? Like, they're going to be ambitious people who are probably not natural. Like, Barack Obama was an international relations major, but I don't think everybody, and it's not what he worked on, didn't serve the military, like, was a, you know, did a lot of things, he was a lawyer. So I think it's one of those ones where you're going to elect a certain number of people, they're going to want a certain number of things. The thing that I think we, they tend to over, like, there's a certain size issue they can just let go to the other parts of the bureaucracy and i don't think they the decision to work on all of it is totally on like i don't think it's good for everybody like i just think they need to find the right size issues and like i think i talk about like grant the like grand strategy is where the president should be right? like i don't like the term grand strategy because i don't think it really it's like terrible but like that makes sense for a president right because like in, it does get into the things the president cares about like domestic stuff and all those sorts of things but they tend to like be up all night dealing with weapons manufacturers. And like that really should not be the job of a national security advisor or a national security staffer. It's like, it's like that's not a good place to be. Yeah. And it's not in their interest. That's what's bizarre. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if you want to make a decision that outlasts your turn, don't put it at the National Security Council. Put it in the bureaucracy because that stays. Pass it in law because that stays. And I think this is kind of where we come back to like what's broken and unwell is that if the sort of gears of decision and action are such that you need Jake Sullivan at night making calls at 3 a.m. to artillery manufacturers, like, you know, this is kind of the same story with Bob Gates and the MRAPs, right? It's like, you know, maybe there's a bit of a savior complex going on, but I'm sure there's still a dynamic where, you know, you, you get extra juice in the gears of these things if you have the most senior person yelling and screaming about about topic x no uh 
I think to some extent, I mean, I, you know, it's, but I also think this is one of these things where it's like, what is the goal, right? If you're president or you're whatever, like, what is the goal? And I think it's, it, this does get into like how you think about government and how you think about like effective policy. Now you think about foreign policy, which is like, what is the goal? Which is like, I think if you think about government as like, and, po and foreign policies, I am just gonna make sure the world doesn't end on my watch and that like the worst doesn't happen. I think you do run into a position where you're just preventing that all the time. And it's like, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, I, like I have kids who are, who are young, who are, who are threatening to come in here at any minute. But like, you can very easily take a job of being a parent of like, I'm just gonna avoid them falling and crying and doing all those sorts of things. If that's the goal, right? Like, that's a certain model of parenting. But like, that's not probably what you should be doing, right? Like, that's not growing a functional, smart, confident kid, right? Like, I think if your goal of, of affecting change is your goal and like making a like changing American foreign policy, like you wouldn't have it happening at the White House beyond a certain point. Like it has to go beyond that. Sustainability is the, the, the path to success. And honestly, sustainability is the path to like history. And like, that's the funny thing that like, and I don't know if it's Hollywood, I don't know if it's the way books are written, but like that incentive that we talked about earlier, like to like speak up and go big when you can, like the, like if you really want to have a big impact, it's like, you know, passing a law that's hard to overturn, like finding enough common ground to get, you know, Republicans and Democrats to do something. It's building a, a, you know, a model in the U.S. military that like around, you know, you know, it's very funny, like, there's an old story about a military commander and somebody said, somebody, a scholar was like, why do you, you know, why haven't you changed the uniform so often? Like during the global war on terror. And the military person like looked up and was like, it's the thing I could change on my own. I don't have to ask anybody for permission, right? And it's like, there is pieces that like, there's fast ways to make change and there's slow ways to make change. And the, the, the incentives are not towards the slow ways. But that is where the real change happens. You have this. You have this one paragraph in your Kissinger um, chapter oh, yeah. where we had, we couldn't get through this without talking about Kissinger. Yes. Like he had to come up. <laughs> so um, uh, you know, there's uh, there's 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 some NSC staffer who ends up uh, doing all of the kind of technical grunt work to get the State Department to sign a new resolution around banning chemical and biological weapons. Um, the paper gets put put in front of. Uh, Kissinger and he goes I can't read this paper let alone understand the issues and, but was like yeah sure seems about right why not and you know yeah. it's it, it's interesting because like the things that the principals and the president tend to gravitate towards are the ones where they think they can understand right like you got this famous story of Biden and Obama um, going into the weeds on the evidence of whether or not Osama is in the building in Abbottabad because they're like, oh, like, you know, I'm a smart person. Like I can weigh this stuff, but like, are they yeah. doing the same thing when it comes to the thresholds around, um, you know, export controls for, uh, for semiconductors? Like probably not, um, because it's just this specific technical, very nuanced thing where you can probably get a lot further, even though it's not 
you know, necessarily the, um, you know, the, 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 the sexiest history of war and peace. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, that, that's, that Kissinger story is always one of my favorites because I interviewed a lot of people who were like, work for Kissinger. And, you know, working for Henry Kissinger is like, I assume being married, being married to like just some sort of, uh, you know, like it's just, it's a time in your life when you went through something wild. And most of them had like horrible experiences, but some people loved it, right? Like, and what, like, was there anything, you know, was there anything rewarding? And they would all point to that chemical weapons that are like, man, that was a really profound policy that we got done. And it was pretty much got done because like, it just didn't rise to the level of something that interested him enough to have an opinion. I mean, like, or that he could understand it, right? So it's like one of those ones where it's a good example, but it's like funny because this is like, you would talk to people during the Trump years and like, I had NSC staffers like reaching out to me like anonymously to talk to me about how bad the NSC staff, but like you would talk to people on government and like, if it was a small enough issue, they were like, it's totally great work, Trump. Like he doesn't really care. Like just kind of go along, we're gonna get this done. Like we work on this little thing in the South Pacific or we work on this little thing in the Arctic. Like he doesn't care. He cares about like the big three or four things and like everything else is just kind of like go along, go along. The difference was is that when he basically just decided that he was going to go to war against all of them. That's when they all got worried. And that's when they all started leaking like crazy to me and others, because they were just like, this is getting out of hand. I mean, and he basically, basically decided that none of that stuff even mattered enough to have the system. Like he was just like, I'm so annoyed with this. I'm just going to get rid of it. Yeah. But it's one of those things where, you know, presidents care about certain numbers of things and certain numbers of things show up on their radar. And mostly because they're put there by their counterparts, the press, the American people like care about like enough of a thing that they actually kind of start to engage on. Uh, John, you talk a little bit about how technology has changed the NSC. You alluded earlier to like email being a thing all of a sudden. What what else over the course of the you know 80 year history um, from a technological evolution perspective has changed how this job gets done? It can sort of track the NSC's power through the different evolutions. So, you know, like Kennedy, like they put telegraph wires through uh, to help Roosevelt do his, you know, what he called juggling, right? Um, and so they existed. And so after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy was like, I need more of the raw stuff. Like, to quote, like I wanted the, like the raw intel, like I don't want to get everything. And so they basically just reactivated the wires. That became the server. Like that was became what it was. Like the sit room didn't exist. Kennedy built the sit room. Like there was always kind of rooms, but like that became it. And so that was a technological revolution. And then everybody was gaming that system because they realized if they put certain words in their messages, they would go right to the White House versus not. Like and so everybody was like saying like most important or high importance or something <laughs> like that. So then you had that one. Um, you have uh, email shows up in the ragged years, right? So you have that like where they pull that in after his uh, assassination attempt. So it's always after bad stuff. Um, assassination attempt, they pull that in. Then you have obviously Blackberries and like that's where an email really takes off in the 90s. That's where the archives become basically impossible because it's just the email traffic alone is insane. Like you can't track it. Uh, the big one that people don't realize is like, it's kind of funny now that like we're sitting here on a system that allows us to talk from one place to another with a video and everything else right is the the nsc at around the time of reagan when they redid the sit room after the assassination attempt um they brought in video teleconferencing 
And so that became a thing where you could be sitting at the Pentagon or sitting at an embassy. And if you had the tech, you could do a video teleconference. I think the speeding of how many people got access to that was far higher in the U.S. government than it was outside. Like, uh, you know, what was the Tanberg machine, which is a separate unit in your office where you would you could dial up, like basically dial a number and have a video teleconference of people, you know, the Pentagon people would do it within the Pentagon, right? Because long walk, you could just do it to the White House, you could do it to the embassy, and like certain offices had these Tanberg machines. And that was a huge like alteration because especially during the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, people would feel like they were in it, right? Like they're talking all hours. They could talk to the general on the ground or his staff at all hours. And they felt like they were in it, but they were not. They were sitting at the old executive office building and going home to their apartment in Georgetown or Arlington or their house in Chevy Chase. And they were able to do this. And so what you see is, is that along the way, this technology has empowered the staff in new ways, right? Because all of that is about pulling information into that one place. Um, and, you know, listen, you know, emails, like I've worked in the government, like emails from the White House, Tamburg's from the White House, phone calls from the White House get returned first in most cases, because that's, you know, the big boss, right? Like that's what you want to do. That's where the center of the power is. And so, um, it is one of those ones where like when the White House calls, you answer. Um, and so this technology has always empowered the White House every single time. Um, you know, th this kind of comes back to your hypothetical, right? Of like, could you imagine a, tw a second half of the 20th century where you don't have an empowered executive? I mean, like maybe like FDR loses in 1944 and there's this big, kind of like backlash or like you don't fight the cold war or something but I, I feel like there are so many other trends that would lead you in favor to a more empowered executive that it's hard for me to like you know from from the technology perspective i don't know it's hard to kind of back out yeah it's a good question i mean so i mean well here's a good example i mean i think you know the presidency is what it is right like it is kind of a thing right so it's like there was always gonna be that yeah. right and as you grew the government which you did post-depression on the domestic side and post-world war ii on the during world war ii and then you know post-world war pearl harbor we'll say on the foreign policy side you were always going to have to have a strong executive right like it was just going to happen so the question okay so here's the question though that is a more interesting question which is even when there's a failure of the white house and even when there's a failure of the executive why is there not an effort to disempower them? So you have, let's, let's go through Bay Pigs, probably not like massive failure, right? Like Bay Pigs bad, but like not massive failure. Watergate, right? Like why didn't, you know, listen, but the, the wiretapping started on the NSC. Those were the first folks who were wiretapped. Why did the, why the NSC continue to exist? Okay, Iran-Contra, nothing. They did nothing. Yeah. Donald Trump. I mean, oh, George W. Bush. All right, so we say Iraq. Like, massive misfire. Perhaps the greatest example of misleadership by an executive in war in the United States in long time, if ever. Nothing happens to change the system. Donald Trump, who literally is like, you know, at this moment, at least a, in contention to be president, and then showed, like, genuine, like not only a 
incapacity for it, but a disbelief in its actual usefulness, let alone its, uh, its rightness, is nothing changed. Like literally nothing has changed. Like there has never been a move on the NSC. Never been a move to really disempower the president. And that is the most bizarre thing to me because you have examples of missteps. And the assumption is it'll be better. People will learn. But the real story is I might get in there someday. Not necessarily as being president, but like my guy might, my team might, or especially at the, in the national security establishment for whatever that means anymore. I could be in there someday. So why would I ever call for it to be a weaker office? There's just no reason to. The, the kind of, one of the wild lines that feels so anachronistic in your book was Reagan saying, you know, well, Ike never had to be worried about getting impeached under the War Powers Act, which just sounds like yeah. such a ridiculously, you know, in hindsight, an anachronistic thing. It's like, this guy did Iran-Contra, this guy totally fucked up Lebanon, and then, you know, you, 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 you write about this, like, after-action report of the, of the Reagan NSC, and they're like, oh, like, maybe we should give it more power. I mean, that, maybe that was another inflection point. If you didn't have, uh, 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 you know, H.W., who was, you know, this traditionalist who's been in the system his entire life, who was, you know, never really going to change all that much from a bureaucratic perspective. Um, the end of the Cold War felt like it might have been that moment. And for sure. Yeah. Trump also, maybe if you had a kind of like a come to Jesus with with them um, uh, 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 with it. But, you know, the Ukraine stuff, people forget about that. The fucking first impeachment um, of yeah. like how wild it was all foreign that policy. Was. Um, it was all foreign policy. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I like I it's fascinating. I I compared it. I compared it to Iran Contra. And it was very interesting. I mean, it was like, you know, the, the fights amongst the resistance, for lack of a better term, right? Of like, everybody would be like, oh, I disagree. It's not like around country. And you're like, okay, what are we talking about here? Like, we're, we're literally like, it's bad. This is at least a way to conceptualize it. Like, what are we talking about? And like, you'd have like, what's this? You'd have like one of these blowhards come in and be like, with like their massive Twitter followers and be like, it has nothing to do with foreign policy. This is just baseline corruption. You're like, no, dude, it's like a basic foreign policy corruption scandal. Like, that's what it was, right? Um, and everybody tries to assume it's like some bigger thing. And you're like, no, he just misused the U.S. government's capacities for his own gain. You know, it was about his gain, not whatever, a policy perspective, but whatever. But the point of the story is, is that, um, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, like, I, I, you know, Brent Scowcroft, too. It's very funny. Like, who is the best? Like, I was asked to, like, who gets, who's the best national security advisor or whatever. Like, that's an interesting conversation amongst, like, nerds and i'm often uh, at those tables and they're like and it's like clearly brent scope like brent scope was the only one that's done it twice so he sort of had that experience and sort of he was best friends or close with the president he was pretty good at it he was good but like nobody is more responsible for the saving of this system than brent scopecroft because he was put on the tower board and investigator on contra and it was pretty much him and his writer steve hadley who wrote the report who saved the National Security Council in 1985, 86, 87. It would not surely exist in the same function, except for those two who did it. And they went out of their way to do it because they didn't see any other way. Um, probably because I think Scowcroft, yeah, I'm sure there's some self-interest in it. Um, they were both products of it and they thought it was important. But it is fascinating. I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's, it, it, it is a weird thing because, um, you know, there's rational pieces of this that you would expect people would react to, and they just don't. 
kids don't. And I don't like, I, you know, it's fascinating. I like ask hard questions about staff and, you know, I have always found more people are like, oh, it's, it's bizarre that people don't ask hard questions about the government. I just find it bizarre, but I, the, the not in, like really revising it after the Cold War is kind of fascinating. And I know the crises came fast and hot, like, you know, what is Panama and Iraq, but like, you know, Richard Haas is probably another one who saved the NSC because, you know, that Gulf War was like, if you look at, you know, until around 2003, like you say, okay, that was really a remarkable operation that went well, that had a limit and like, you know, all those things, but like, we might not have gone to war if Richard Haas hadn't been working on the NSC in August of 1990, right? Like that might not have been how it went. Like I, I tell that story, I, that story is fascinating. I, mean, I don't think many people know that like how deeply and late General Powell, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, basically didn't want to go to war. And like they, it, you know, Richard Haas, Bob Gates, who was the deputy national security advisor, Brent Skullcroft, along with H.W. Bush, came up with the idea of an ultimatum that they gave. And like, like listen, Brent, like General Powell didn't want to do it like at all. And they basically wrote, I tell this great story about finding the note from the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who wrote a note and like wrote up top, and I forget exactly the direct quote, but it's like, tell your supreme leader that this idea is basically tantamount to going to war or something like that. That's a paraphrase. And it was like literally at the top of a response to a memo. And like, you know, I sat with this vice chairman and, and I was sitting with him, interviewing him in his office, in his home. And he would tell people over the years, like, oh, yeah, it was one of the best decisions we ever made. And like, like well, you opposed it. And he was like, wow. And it became very clear. He's like, well, I obviously don't remember. He said, like, he broke down. He's like, I obviously don't remember opposing it. And it was like, because it had gone well. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like kind of amazing. But like, that is probably one of the reasons we have an NSC today. It's because those guys proved it could work. And a few women were on that NSC. What's like the, the power ranking of like how good the staff work has seemed to you? from the presidential archives. Well, I will say the two things I would say is like, you would, you know, one thing is true, which is that it is remarkably, like most people would probably feel pretty better about their government if they read any of this stuff. Cause you're like, it's you know, pretty smart. Like people try, like it's done. The second thing is I think, um, I think it's remarkably consistent. Interesting. That's another thing that would probably surprise you. Like, it's like, it's not like there were like illiterates running around on, you know, certain NSCs, I mean. Like, you know, there's, there, you know, there's a pretty standard pedigree of what an NSC staffer is over 80 years. It's a white Harvard, Ivy League educated, mostly men, but a lot of women, overeducated person who has like read foreign affairs more than they probably should. And that's pretty much what the writing, like if you're like, if you're like chat GBT, write a national security council memorandum in the voice of a white, overeducated foreign affairs subscriber, you would probably get 90% comes out of these documents. That said, um, what I, I would say the stuff I hated reading was I hated reading the re Nixon stuff. Like you could feel the psychodrama in the pages. And like part of that is like memory, but like reading Kissinger stuff is like, and reading, listening to the transcripts of the calls and like reading them, you're like, these are the, worse people like you would just like 
these two human beings ran into each other in the time space of history and created such mayhem. And it's like truly bananas, like that, that like those two dark forces arrived in the same place and time and decided, let's go, let's go put on a show together. It's like bizarre. Like, I mean, it was like totally original and wrought terror around the world, right? Like sure, made some good decisions, but like some really bad things came about it, you know, including like the wire that they wiretapped guys who are his old friends. Like he was like, he was wiretapping friends he worked with at Harvard. So it was like, they were, oh, I could go on forever. So who did I like? Um, you know, I mean like, listen, like, you know, the Kennedy guys had charm and wit, right? Like you're like, you could see it in the page. Like you could feel it. Like, so you're like, oh, these guys, would I want them to like set up a war in Southeast Asia? No, but I'd probably like to have a scotch for like, 90% of the NSC of Kennedy. And like, I would love to sit around the fireplace and watch him rock in his rocking chair and it'd be fun. Like that seems like fun. Um, I mean, there was definitely like, just I think the how well read everybody was in that era versus how well read they are today. I think is like, I think the writing has gotten a little more stilted, but also, you know, I'm a strong believer that like very few great American speeches have been written in the, in the word processor era because there's something to be said for typing on a typewriter. Mm. There's also something to be said for most of them had his secretaries who were typing that stuff for him and they were really good writers um, and very smart mm. and like fixed errors and that kind of stuff. So the stuff was better in back then because they had, they were saying it out loud. Somebody was distilling it. They would then rewrite it and it would be done on a new piece of paper. It wasn't deleting. It wasn't tweaking around the margins. It's like why whenever I have to write an op-ed, I write it print it out and I rewrite it on a blank sheet of paper. So I'm like, that's how you get to condensing your thoughts. Um, but they were great. So I, I mean, I would, I would read any of that stuff nine times out of 10, like the memos of Richard Neustadt who gave Kennedy memos on setting up his presidency. There's a book that compiles them all. They're like jaunty, punchy. Like this is like, he gave him basically permission to be Roosevelt and his stuff, his memos are just awesome. Like, it, and, and, and really amazing. And that, that, that was a generation that knew how to write and could write in ways that today's not as, not as, not as great at it, but that doesn't make it bad or worse. What do you think like Word documents and track changes has done for the national security? Group? Oh, it's the worst. I mean, it was, I mean, I could say it's like if somebody who worked in government and wrote speeches in government in the track changes era, like you would, you send these out and it's like, you like people just destroy them. And it's like, and it just becomes impossible. And listen, like, there's like, so like the speeches, it's like misery. Like, it's like, oh, this is terrible. I mean, I remember like some guy who worked, went to grad school with me, called me and he, and I hadn't heard from him in like five years. He's like, he said, I just read the draft of the speech. Cause when I worked in government, the secretary of defense, I wrote speeches for demanded that we put our names at the top and our phone numbers so they could call us if he ever had a beef. <laughs> and so like, then they would go out into the bureaucracy, like, and somebody like Homeland Security picked up the phone and was like, the John Gans I took whatever class with would never have written this. And I said, what the fuck? What are you doing here, dude? And he was like, we have crossed this out. I'm like, great, well, I'll just rewrite it again. But like, whatever, like, whatever we want to do. So I, I think like generally like not a net positive. Um, I think it's really hard to write cohesive thoughts. Like there's a genuine, but there's like a strategic piece here. Like one of the things, like I interviewed Cheney, which was a trip and I interviewed Rumsfeld. And listen, like lots of differences of opinion with those. Speaking of dark forces that united at a unique moment in history, 
But, you know, they do have a really interesting point about strategy and they do connect it to word processing and everything. But their basic thing is it's very hard to do strategy in government. And there is a tendency towards basically saying, well, I'll just take all these ideas and we'll call it a strategy instead of having a true classic strategy that is pure and consistent and has a through line. And their basic argument is, is there's a tendency just to take all, they wouldn't put it this way, but to basically take all the track changes and say, oh, here's a strategy and not realize that all the inputs are pulling you off the strategic course. And that was their beef around a lot of the Iraq stuff at the end. And they would basically say like, we aren't doing real strategic thinking because in a bureaucracy where everybody has their view and where you stand depends on where you sit, the inputs into the strategy go in there. And unless you have a real jerk who's willing to go through there and be like, no, doesn't fit. No, it doesn't fit. No, and I'm willing to fight to the end to cut this out. It'll all end up in there. And what you get is a strategic model. And more times than not, getting into stuff we've talked about, like there's a, there's a, there's a tendency to just be like, oh, I'll just accept all the changes because then it's approved, right? And I don't have any more beef because everybody's got to have their say in the document. But the, the end is like, in my case, shitty speeches, but in strategy case, terrible strategies. The, the sort of dynamic you talked about earlier of like this whole enterprise of the National Security Council, part of it is just to get everyone on board and, you know, rowing in the right direction. But if you don't do the painful part of saying no to people and having all these fights um, and, you know, making sure that, you know, you're not doing two things that are diametrically opposed to each other, then you end up with this sort of like really ugly, mushy decision by committee. Like here's like 47 bullet points that don't add up to anything. No, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, there's the path of least resistance and, you know, honestly, track changes allow, it, it makes it a lot easier because you don't even have to retype it, right? Like, it's just like it all goes in there and it got great. I just have to hit one button and it's done. And in theory, you all agree with it. And, you know, but it's, it's junk. I mean, and listen, I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners, I'm sure you have read national security strategies of recent vintage. And that's what those things are. They are, they've been track changed to death. Like they are, it's just like, I gotta get this word in here. And that word ends up in there and it makes no sense. Like they are brutal documents. And I, and they, then the results, they're the results of the process, which is like, everybody gets to have their say. And there's an incentive not to say no. I would give feedback and I'd be like, this is bullshit. Like, and I would be like, I got help from colleagues, you know, uh, and that's life. But like, you, you know, and I'm like no master strategist or master speechwriter, but it was like, I'm just going to say no, because I don't think it adds up. But it's hard saying no in government. It's hard saying yes in government is pretty easy. Uh, any closing recommendations, John, books? I don't know, some like weird lateral book that like has interesting implications for national security organization and decision making? My view on this stuff is like, read the stuff about like, and I'm not the first person to say this, but like, read novels about power, read novels about, you know, democracy, read these things that are about this. Like, I think uh, Elliot Cohen's book uh, that's out now, his Shakespeare book is like a great book to kind of understand what it's like to sit, what it's like to be around people who are interested in power. 
And that is a pretty good indication of like, read the things that make you like reading a book, uh, like honestly reading my book, will that help you understand like what it, what these people are like who go into these jobs? Like that's, I mean, it, it would, but it's like, there are other ways to do that that are more interesting. that will probably train your brain in a different way. And like Elliot's book on Shakespeare or just reading the Shakespeare, like just being like getting power, getting the folly of it. I mean, and I think that is one of those perspectives. Like you have to have a degree of sense of humor about this, this world to be like, you know, to kind of get the absurdity of it. Um, and like the belief that like, if I do, if I go to bed in the next hour, the world could end. I mean, that's an absurd thing to think, but there are a lot of people watching that think that right now. Right. And that's an absurd thing to do. But like having that perspective is the only way I think to read this stuff and be like, because I think you can have the distance to be like, to not take on face value the belief that if I have to be in this seat or the world's going to end, because the, the fact is that's probably not true. But yeah, I mean, the number of people who thought that history is true and the world keeps going. It is, but it isn't, John. I mean, the world might not end, but like people could die. And people will do end up dying based on the decisions yeah, that happen. Done. And then, th yeah. then there's sort of the question of like, am I so much better than the next person in the job? Or is my marginal extra hour? And is my trade off of like worse decision making because I have worse sleep versus the extra, you know, the, the I'm smarter because I got, you know, six hours instead of five. Like, but I do think it's like the case is pretty clear that like, you know, life and death decisions happen um, in these. For sure. For um, but they do, they, they do happen. Yeah. But I think the question I would say is, is that it's big government. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of people like, you know, there are shifts for a reason. There are like the next guy or the next woman will come in there. Like there would be somebody else who would have the same incentives and disincentives sitting at that desk. If you weren't there. Yeah. Like, like you are making, and I mean, this insensitive, like lots of things get done on the margins, but like this idea that like any one of these people is essential to like the end, like America's future or America's past. Like it's just, it's, it's a big world. It's big government. It's a long cycle. And so that piece, I would say like, yes, there are life and death decisions, but like there is, I think a degree of believing that I have to sit here and like, listen, that makes you less likely to be good tomorrow. So I just think it's like one of those ones where it's like, you don't know when history is going to show up. And I think this tendency to like, say, I got to make it is a very, I get it. But I also think it is like, it is a impulse to fight or at least to keep in mind. And I think that is one thing that if I was hoping anything, like I find very interesting. I wrote a book that has maybe passed a shadow of the National Security Council as a career. <laughs> it's like, Maybe this isn't the best place you could sit, right? Like, you know, most people have sat there and had, you know, they screwed up as much as they've succeeded. But it's like fascinating because like the number of emails, I mean, I still get emails about this book. I still get t tweets, whatever, X's or whatever, posts or whatever. Like, you know, the nine out of 10 times that some young person is like, I want to go work on the NSC. What do I have to do? And I'm like, what? Like, I just wrote this book. And it's like, I don't, <laughs> what, what are you doing with you? <laughs> Why would that be? Why would you reach out to me? Like, I'm like, I would, you want me to encourage you? So I, but I do think this point of it is that's sort of fascinating, which is like, there's a tendency about getting it and there's a tendency about doing it. And, you know, if I was telling a young person is like, get ready to be there and have the right perspective. And the right perspective is 
big world. I have so much control and you know, that little things can do as much as let's go big. And if you do little things every day, you can change things in a really interesting way. And I think that having that perspective would make a very interesting NSC staffer. Um, maybe not one that makes the book, but maybe that's not a bad thing. You know, yeah. I want to close with a, uh, 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 a tweet by Marco Jukic of Bismarck Analysis. Uh, who said that the elite is not shadowy or mysterious. America is ruled by a technocratic, lanky, Gen X Ivy League white guy um, archetype who just flies under the radar. Um, you know, white Ivy League, I think it kind of speaks for itself. But what's with the lanky? Like, everyone, like, runs marathons and is skinny nowadays. Like, did you used to see more paunches back in the day? Like, what's, what, what's sort of the body type evolution of the NSC staffer been over time? I mean, I, I the, 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 the body type. So I think the first thing is I'd say is like literally aside from the Gen X, literally that tweet could have been sent any time between 1947 and today and probably would have been appropriate. Um, in terms of the lanky, I think it's like a little bit of youth, right? Like it's like, it's like, you know, you, you don't have that, you know, and I would say like there's a difference between when they start and when they end. Okay. So I think the body type is, you know, um, you fit in Brooks, you fit in Brooks Brothers. That's pretty much the body type. And, you know, that is to say there's a much more diverse NSC than it was 60 years ago, for sure, right? That said, I think it's still a very bizarre place because most people tend to think very similarly along the same lines, which is what is truly tr truly amazing. And that is the piece that I think is the most impactful thing is that they all went to the same schools in most cases, I think. Is there a particular, maybe we'll play some like, like, like Nixon Kissinger back and forth. Is there a particular one you're a, you're a fan of? When it comes to Nixon and Kissinger, I can't say I have any favorites in the sense that, uh, I didn't particularly, as I said earlier, enjoy, uh, my, my, my deep dive into the sort of psychodrama that played out between them and around them. But I think there are, they are, I think you know, if for nothing else, the most sort of raw, sort of unfiltered way to really understand the thinking and the interplay between those two complicated, you know, combustible and, and in some ways damaged individuals. I think uh, recordings themselves, you know, um, they are not the Richard Nixon wasn't the first president to sort of record calls and, 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 um, you know, nor was Henry Kissinger the first pe person to sort of have what he did, which was he did a lot of, um, memorandums of conversations that his aides would sort of type up as he was going along in his calls. And he did a lot of phone calls. So, you know, when you go to the archives, the, the Nixon archives out in California, you just spend hours going through these, these memorandum of teleconversations telephone conversation they're just shot they're just amazing almost day minute by minute sort of um ways to sort of see his thinking and and how he was trying to influence the thinkings of others because i mean kissinger was an incredibly persuasive incredibly um he was his ambition was so strong and he was always trying to convince people he was sort of right there's lots of these conversations you can sort of Google them on YouTube and everything else. And, and you can get to them when you're, you know, 
some of them are on the Nixon library website. You can get to them when you're out there. You know, the the one that I think has gotten some attention, but I also think is, is just a great teaching tool and a great sort of way to sort of see what it must be like to sit in the White House is, um, is a recording from December of 1972. So, you know, set stage, Nixon had just won re-election, you know, resoundingly. He had just had uh, Kissinger and, and the North Vietnamese delegation had been negotiating in Paris uh, for a while. Uh, it had come to some sort of final terms, you know, clear that we were making progress. You know, it was pretty clear the United States was getting out of Vietnam at that point, and they were negotiating a deal. And, you know, talks broke down, and Nixon and Kissinger and others decided to sort of unleash what became known as Operation Winebacker and or the, you know, uh, at, no, that later became known as the Christmas bombings in December of 1972 to try and, you know, they issued an ultimatum and then they were hoping the bombings would drive the Chinese to accept their terms and come back to the negotiating table and all these things. And so this recording is really them as they're trying to like think through how this whole thing will play out. And you just see this sort of hubris. You see this sort of worldview from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and the Oval Office in particular, what it was like to sit there. And you see them sort of trying to rationalize what was a barbaric move in retrospect as this sort of move of strategic genius. And they really did, I think, think that they were, you know, really the, the geniuses at play here. And so you see it all and you hear it all in this recording. I mean, you, just, you can just palpably feel it. Um, and, you know, what makes it such a great recording and what the irony of it is, is, you know, of course, Nixon and to some extent Kissinger didn't trust anybody. Right. So they, they were doing this um, in part because they wanted to have these recordings so that they would have the knowledge of not only what they said, but what others said. And they also thought that like history would look fondly upon them. So they didn't trust historians to tell the truth. They didn't trust journalists to tell the truth. They didn't tell their, trust their colleagues to tell the truth. So these recordings were about that. And what's the best part about it is they record this, their strategic thinking in raw terms, right? And you can hear it in, on the tape. But then the best part about it is, of course, you know, decades pass. And, and, and what became very clear is, is that, and as, as I think become clear is, you know, the actual impact of these barbaric bombings in which, you know, American uh, forces dropped just, just a 20,000 tons by some estimates. Uh, on, you know, killed almost 1,600 people, uh, civilians, you know, just just a ridiculous bombing, Tanoi, Haiphong, and all these sorts of things. And you sort of, and what ends up happening is, is that, you know, most historians would say, you know, maybe it had some level of impact, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, and and eventually the North Vietnamese returned to the, the negotiating table, and, and there probably is some argument to be made that the bombings drove them back to the negotiating table. But at the end of the day, they were basically accepting, uh, as one American diplomat later said, they were basically accept. They were basically forcing them back to the table to accept our concessions. So it's it's it sort of shows you not just the sort of uh, the the hubris uh, that can happen when you sit there in, in in the in the Oval Office that you're really driving events, but also just kind of you know the sort of uh, you know the preciousness of thinking that strategy uh, can be determined. And really finely tuned to deliver these results because the 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 long term 
implications of the war were very clear by then. Um, and, you know, um, what this really probably was, was just an out, uh, you know, just a sort of outburst of, you know, frustration, anger, and attempts to sort of save pace by Nixon, Kissinger, and others. And you can sort of hear it all in the tape. So it's a really valuable document. One of a few pieces you can really imagine uh, and really get a glimpse of what it's like to sit in the White House. And, and so it's a great one to teach. It's a great one to listen to and a great one that will probably uh, haunt you or at least you'll remember, uh, your listeners will remember for, for years. Yeah. Uh-huh.